Welcome back, guys, to episode 47 of the JPS podcast. And in this episode, I'm honored to have Berge Fajerli and Mike Isratel join me to discuss the role of training volume for muscle growth, the context in which volume requirements may differ, whether or not training volume is the primary driver of muscle growth, as well as their approach to measuring training volume and the concept of effective reps. We also discuss evolutionary dieting and the influence of seasonal changes on nutritional strategies. This episode is really, really good, guys, and I hope you all enjoy the discussion. Without further ado, I present Berge Fajeli and Mike Isratel. Thank you uh, for joining me, Mike and Borge. Uh, guys, we're in for a treat today. I have two uh, brilliant minds in the fitness industry, both of whom uh, I really respect and enjoy uh, their work and contributions to fitness. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing uh, their somewhat divergent viewpoints on training for hypertrophy, specifically volume requirements, um, as well as talking about some nutrition and uh, theories around carbohydrate intake for, for fat loss and, and muscle growth. So welcome, Borge and Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So guys, I first wanted to kick off with a little bit of a discussion about training volume and its role uh, for hypertrophy. And volume in the literature has been shown to play quite a significant role in hypertrophy adaptations. The findings have indicated a graded dose-response relationship, so more volume produces greater gains in hypertrophy up until a point where it starts to flatline and we see diminishing returns. So, Borge, you've stated that the current trend in the fitness industry is to cherry-pick studies that show the superiority of volume and you know the soon-to-be-published Schoenfeld uh, paper, which everybody is raving about. I know Mike and I have had a discussion about this uh, in Melbourne when he was here for the UEBC. Um, you feel that that invalidates you know, the six decades or so of research that you know, has shown that only uh, you know, a few sets are needed to make gains and where multiple sets are only slightly better than one to two. So is there anything that you want to say to that and why you feel that this is the case? Uh, well, no, I guess that's pretty much it. I, I, I just kind of tend to think that, you know, I, I, I just found it kind of strange that even James Krieger um, and his previous meta-review where he sort of just updated that meta-review and, and almost completely changed his stance from, well, there's this moderate volume range, which is uh, pretty much uh, is going to give you um, all, all the, or the maximum rate of gains, and there's a there's going to be a dose response curve that tends to flatten out at a certain volume range, and uh, there's also going to be a point of diminishing returns. Um, so I, I just kind of find it strange. Well, now there's a new, you know what they say about new studies, that you, you have guys saying, well, how old is that study whenever someone uh, asks for a reference? And suddenly, well, just because it's an old study, you know, it's, it's invalid. We, we should just you know, ignore it or something. And I kind of find that a little strange. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm also highly interested in seeing the results. Um, and that also being said, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm not at all claiming that this is wrong at all. Um, if you look at, like, uh, the Bayesian bodybuilding sites, Manu Hansemans and his uh, research group, they've got um, uh, a plot 
of all the studies on training volume. And if you look at that and they, where they plot just effect size on the, um, on the x-axis and they, they plot number of sets on the y-axis, and the plot is just basically all over the place uh-huh. in, in trained individuals, like not untrained. So uh-huh. we're looking at people who are previously trained. And there's like no correlation line at all. There's no like linear relationship at all. Now there's two studies that are really high up on the effect size scale. Um, As far as I know, one of those is an occlusion study using very low loads and uh, extremely high frequency. And I think uh, three sets, uh, two to three times per day, six days per week, something like that. So it's like crazy high volume. Um, Now that study, as far as I recall, they, they saw that uh, hypertrophy um, tended to stagnate after only three to four weeks, which is usually what you see in these occlusion studies, probably because they're using such a low load and maybe also because they're not taking into account the swelling and inflammation that mm-hmm. occurs when you dry volume really high. But, but you, you could sort of see the cluster of the highest effect sizes uh, between six to ten sets, but also between ten to twenty sets. So again, if you if you start to dig deeper into the um, uh, subject pool and the methods and the measuring methods and all that stuff, uh, I mean the the picture isn't all that clear in my opinion. And and what I've been saying, you know, keep keep in mind that that I'm doing most of my publishing now in the sustainable self development. Mm. And, and that kind of, that, that's in the name. Uh, these are guys that have tried it all. These are also guys and girls that have normal lives, social lives, uh, friends, family, children, <clears throat> and find that their modern lifestyle t- tends to conflict, you know, optimal meets life, as I tend mm-hmm. to say. So, so I'm not at all saying that more volume will not drive more hypertrophy. I'm just saying that at a certain point, even if you gotta just ask yourself, even if you can do more, should you do more? Yeah. That's number one. And and number two, if you have all the recovery abilities to to sustain that volume and you can gain from it, now that's that's perfectly fine. And and if you can do that for months and years and that's worth it to you, just you know, go ahead. I'm I'm you know I'm happy for you. Uh, but, but at a certain point, unless you want to be like this hardcore bodybuilder or, or you know, there, there's always going to be a genetic and biological limit and hormonal limit to how big you can actually get. So, so, I mean, what's the hurry? If it takes you two to three years to get there or if it takes you five to six years, hopefully we're all here to lift for several decades. So, so I'm not really sure whether doing twice or triple the volume will eventually make you big as fuck, you know, mm-hmm. if you weren't meant to be. And, yes. and so the first thing is just, you know, the whole context is that I want to help people that have tried these higher volume routines. And I've also been working with, with I, I've lost count of the number of clients that, that have tried the high volume routines and being obsessed about it and just mm-hmm. tried to do everything right but still can't make it work simply because they don't have the recovery abilities. And, and so that, that's sort of the context where, where I'm speaking from and also as a guy that's 44 and, and probably as big as I'm ever going to get. And I don't 
really see spending more time in the gym being worth it for me, but it might be worth it for, for others. And, and to, to finish off with that uh, rant, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to say that looking at, looking at volume in isolation from mm. all the other variables like intensity, frequency, and again, lifestyle and recovery abilities, you know, that's not a very good discussion to have. And, and I mean, we had this, this one guy creating a ruckus in the sustainable self-development group because he claimed we advise too high volume. He said that we should all be doing the Martin Burke and the War Hard Gainers Stuart Oprah Roberts routines because the low volume routines are built such strong and big motherfuckers over several decades. And now we have guys going, you know, referencing Mike and Brad and, mm -hmm. and all the evidence based crowd and their, you know, high volume routines. And there's no other way to get big than just to do high volume. So, well, then there's me, and I'm sort of in the middle. I'm, I'm just sort of trying to fit this into a lot of So, you know, bring in all the other variables that, that tend to uh, have a meaningful difference in, in uh, the grand scheme of things. Yeah, awesome. I think you can't look at one variable in isolation, uh, you know, especially when it comes to training. And I think, as you said, context is extremely important uh, when it comes to volume recommendations. Mike, anything you want to add to that? Uh, you know, nothing that wouldn't be particularly uh, supportive of that. I think there's a lot to expand upon there. Mm -hmm. Um, I could do that late, later. If you, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, um, I definitely would like to set the record straight. I mean, straight uh, for the fiftieth time. Not that a lot of Facebook will hear um, about what the volume landmarks that we have say about this. Um, and potentially, that's one of your later questions or something. So I don't want to sort of speak out of turn. Yeah, awesome. So, I guess uh, Borge, you've explained before that you know volume isn't the primary driver of hypertrophy and you've mentioned this uh, in the sustainable self-development group and you know a lot of uh, folk in the evidence-based crowd would probably uh, suggest that it is and have differing opinions to that I guess uh, did you want to explain you know why you think this is the case and I guess this ties into you know we can't look at volume in isolation without uh, the other variables at play. Mm. Um, so did you want to discuss that? And then I guess, Mike, we can uh, kick off the discussion from there. No, I'm, I'm just saying, well, it's a driver, but it's not the primary driver. I, I just tend to disagree with that. You know, and, and I think a good analogy for adaptation is, um, you know, we uh, probably most of us have heard of the concept of hormesis. So you apply a stressor of a sufficient duration and intensity, and the body adapts to that. Um, if you overdo the stressor, either by intensity or duration, then the body tends to maladapt. You know, if you if you don't have the recovery resources to adapt to that stressor, and and I usually tend to uh, to um, go back to the whole suntan analogy, and and where. You know, volume would obviously be the time you spend in the sun, and, and intensity would be how, you know, uh, the latitude you're, you're in, or, you know, how close to the equator you are, or what time of the year it is. So, 
let's say for me here in Norway, if I went out outside and spent time in the sun for one hour in January, and I just kept spending that one hour out in the sun until it was in the middle of June, and the sun was at its high, at its high point, I, I'm pretty sure I would get a suntan. Um, and that suntan would look uh, pretty nice. And in my opinion, it, it, it does. So, and I haven't spent more than one hour in the sun. So, so I just think it's that as long yeah. as you keep, there, there's different ways of adding volume. You know, you can add more reps and time under, under tension, but you can also add more load. So I tend to think that load is a very important driver for muscle growth. Um, and the recent q and A I did for the sustainable self development podcast we we discussed like the the avian models where they ha- hang weights from the the wings of the of birds, uh, birds. Yeah. yeah, and they noticed like some pretty extreme muscle growth in in only a few days of time where the animal or the bird would you know sort of contract against a stretch of of the weights uh, but later experiments show that by far the most impressive muscle growth probably ever seen in, in, the, in an animal model was when they added progressive resistance to that. So they not only had the duration, but they also had the increment in, in uh, load. Um, so I guess that's sort of just my main point that I think you can find like a Goldilocks zone, like a sweet spot of volume where you operate within and then you sort of just apply the right amount of load progression and, and also frequency so that you sort of, you know, again, the whole Goldilocks zone in all those variables so that you you know, drive muscle growth higher and higher and higher. But at a certain point, you're probably not going to get any bigger, at least not at any significant rate. So at that point, you can for sure add more volume and and get maybe a higher rate of growth uh, at that level. But again, I'm I'm not really sure it's worth it unless, you know, training is is your life and and you just want to get as big as you can possibly can. So, so, yeah, I think that's basically my, my, um, a summary of my, my viewpoints. But like Mike said, we can certainly yeah. go into all of those directions and discuss the finer points. But, but I think that's just my general point of view. Awesome. And I think just to clarify so that uh, you know, we are speaking the same language, when you refer to adding volume, you're talking about number of sets per week yes. per muscle group. Cool, Um, because that's a discussion I want to have with you both uh, later in the episode is uh, how we're tracking volume these days, given a few changes in literature. So, Mike, uh, your thoughts and opinions on that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think it's right on. Um, I think that uh, the first thing that ever has to happen before you start putting together a training program, like my colleague James Hoffman would point out, is a needs analysis so you actually have to figure out what you need, and before that, you actually had to have to do a wants analysis, which a lot of people don't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's very easy for an athlete to do a needs analysis because their wants is to be as good as possible at the game, and then the needs are okay. How do I get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people don't even do a wants analysis where they don't even know what the hell they're doing in the gym, why, and then they're like, oh, look at this study, forty-five sets a week, great, and you're like, okay, you know. <laughs> That, that sounds fine, but are you really willing to put in that much work? I and mean, it may not be. Um, and I think people have a lot of notions going on in their head, but not a lot of 
sort of really calm thinking about a, a long-term process-oriented approach to muscle growth that balances those trade-offs of what they want. Um, I think that uh, you know there, you can split people into two camps, although it's really a spectrum between I want to be um, uh, I want to get some muscle growth and look better and be leaner and um, uh, stronger, and I also love you know a ton of balance in my life with all kinds of hobbies and family and work and so on and so forth. And then you go further down the spectrum and you eventually reach the end, which is I want to make a, a run for IFBB pro bodybuilder and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get as big as possible. And you know where you sort of categorize yourself on that spectrum is really going to determine where you end up training as far as volume is concerned and also as far as frequency is concerned and intensity and so on and so forth. So uh, it ends up being one of these things where you have to decide what it is you want. And I think a lot of the folks that have sort of construed uh, Berge and myself to be in opposition on these points are really just, um, uh, you know, we're speaking to two different populations. Mm -hmm. Berge is speaking yes. primarily to the first. Thank you. I'm speaking primarily to the second, but not always to the second. Um, and, uh, you know, it's so uh, I actually have like a, you know, my way of uh, how folks come to me and say, hey, you know, I don't know what my training volume should be for growth. You know, if they're my clients, we have the needs analysis discussion right away. What, what, what do you want, right? Uh, but, you know, if, they're, if I assume that they want some level of muscle growth and plenty of it, what I actually in almost every case do is have them find their minimum effective volume first. So the, the lowest volume from which you can grow, and uh, it's actually not super difficult to find. It just takes a couple of months. And once you find your minimum effective volume, you can see, okay, this is like the least I have to do to get any real noticeable growth. Is this something that fits my schedule and my lifestyle super well? And am I comfortable with this rate of growth? Or do I want to grow faster at the trade-off of more volume? And as soon as you say, I want to grow faster, you start very slowly increasing the average volume of your programs. And uh, then you see what kind of growth you get. Some of your body parts may reach their maximum recoverable volume quite soon into that process. Some will reach their maximum recoverable volume at four times higher volume than that process. Mm -hmm. so you could start out with 10 sets as the least your biceps need to grow. And some people's MRVs end up being 40 sets a week. Now, look, if you want really big biceps and you want them bad, yeah, you'll have to cycle your training all the way up to 40 sets per week every now and again. Um, but if you want just bigger arms and 12 to 15 sets a week can get you there, why on earth would you go higher? Um, so then it all depends on what you want as an individual. Um, I think the, uh, the, the big mistake people make is they, they try to find their maximum recoverable volume first. Um, God knows why, because you don't ever need that until you're really at the cusp of like, I want to grow as much as possible. Then, yeah, you know, back, uh, maximum recoverable volume, you'll find it eventually by just pushing. But um, it's one of those things where um, uh, a lot of folks don't have their priorities straight, and it's just by no means clear what it is they're training for. Once they answer that question, I think it's good to find the minimum effective volume or sort of that area and then see if you want any more than that. And um, a lot of that comes down to lifestyle trade-offs, so on and so forth. There's more to say on lifestyle trade-offs. I don't know if now is the best time or later, but your maximum recoverable volume will change greatly based on you know, how much uh, you're working, how much involved your family life is, mm -hmm. what your diet is like, um, all the sports you're doing. So I think some people look at these studies and say, oh, I can train for 40 sets a week. 
well, no, you can't train for 40 sets a week because your MRV is not that high. Um, and if you train beyond your maximum recovery volume, then it's really pointless and injurious and, and backwards. So I think another thing is making sure you know your own volume landmarks, what's the least it's going to take for you to grow, what's the most you can recover from. Know your own volume landmark because other people's volume landmarks are completely a waste of time to you, uh, which is why people you know, ask, hey, you know, is, uh, is German volume training good? My usual answer is if you want a lot of muscle growth and you can recover from it, yes. If you can't recover from it, no, it's terrible. So a mm -hmm. lot of people don't even bother figuring that part out. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I think that's really important to discuss is just how individual volume requirements uh, can be for all the reasons you guys outlined. And I guess uh, to speak to the second part of uh, my questions to Borge, you know, do you see volume as the primary driver of hypertrophy? No. I believe I answered that. No, 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 Mike. My Mike. Previous. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when you said, when you said Berge, you really meant me. No, Good no, job hosting this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I was saying when I, what I asked Borge before uh, about oh, volume being the primary I driver see. of hypertrophy. Sorry, I'm right. Australian. English is my second language. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that intensity is the primary driver of hypertrophy in a mechanistic sense because you can't do a lot of volume of incredibly low intensity and grow any muscle. So, uh, but as soon as you reach a minimum threshold intensity, roughly 30% of one rep max, I think modulating the volume gets you a bigger yield in terms of how much hypertrophy you're doing. So uh, while in a strict mechanistic sense, intensity is the determinant of hypertrophy, volume is a way to dose out that intensity. The dose is incredibly important. I'll put this in perspective. If you want to grow more and you're currently training at 60% of your one rep max on average, is, and somebody gives you two options, you can stay at roughly 60%, but start increasing volume so long as you can recover and grow. Um, or you can uh, slowly over time start to increase your intensities and go closer to 80% of your one rep max, but you have to keep your volume the same. The first option will probably give you more muscle growth, whereas the second option will probably, well, probably for sure give you better strength increase. So modulating intensity within a certain confine alters strength and endurance modulating volume seems to alter hypertrophy more so. Um, so that would be my answer to that. Awesome. Borge, anything you want to add to that? Because I know you've spoken about uh, the importance of load progression uh, and its role in hypertrophy. Yeah, I actually tend to, uh, I, I actually tend to think that you can keep volume the same as long as it's the proper dose. And goes back to my analogy of spending uh, time in one hour in the sun and gradually increasing that intensity of the, the stressor, and, and that will for sure drive hypertrophy. But yeah, also strength. I don't disagree with that. But adding volume is, um, if you look at it from, you know, a pure adaptational, you know, uh, specific uh, adaptation to impose demands, the more you increase. Um, the duration of loading or stress, that will also make the body adapt specifically to that, uh, not necessarily just by increasing um, the growth of the muscle, but also adaptations uh, directed towards endurance and work capacity. So 
So I'm not really sure I entirely disagree, uh, disagree, but I don't entirely agree either. I think you can for sure get, I mean, to repeat my previous argument, um, how big you're going to get is going to be determined by your individual genes and biology and hormonal environment. I don't think that, uh, I mean, to, to get... To get within 95% of that, I don't think volume is going to be the determining factor. I think there are too many other factors involved, and, and um, a certain volume can for sure, and has been time-tested and proven that you can for sure get to a, a pretty good amount of uh, size of hypertrophy uh, with a quite moderate volume. Now, again, moderate seems to be needed to define properly mm -hmm. because I tend to think it's between, let's say, 6 to 10 or maybe 6 to 12 sets per week. And uh, I think you will also find that a lot of successful programs that many big and strong guys have been using for several decades. If you go back and read the Titan Slacks of Desoban blog and, and you know, the, the whole old-time lifting routines and all that stuff. And, and you can see that there are many that have thrived and grown as big as they can get on, on quite moderate volumes, whereas you would obviously also have the guys that have grown on high volumes and the guys that have grown on even lower, lower volumes. So at this point, I, I don't think we can say that Yes, you might get a slightly faster rate of growth by adding volume and using that as a, as a primary driver within perhaps 60%. I would probably take that up to 70 or 75%, to be honest, for muscle growth. But I don't think that just adding volume will necessarily make you bigger in the end. Mike? How do you uh, feel about that? Do you agree, disagree, anything you want to add? I think the reason that adding volume won't necessarily make you bigger in the end is because you could exceed your maximum recoverable volume uh, in that you have as an individual. So long as you don't exceed that and you supply the adequate food and recovery modalities, I think you will continue to grow as long as you add volume. And uh, I think that adding volume is a more dependable way of enhancing hypertrophy, at least in the medium term, than uh, altering your program to be one of higher intensity. Or in other words, shooting to become as strong as you can for, let's say, sets of two to three reps, uh, can and will result in a certain degree of hypertrophy. On the other hand, shooting to be able to do as many uh, or more and more sets so long as you can recover of 10 to 15 reps and slowly increasing how many sets you're able to do while not decreasing the intensity um, is probably going to result in more volume. Uh, in other words, if someone comes to me and they're after a, a large measure of hypertrophy and not particularly interested in strength, and they're going to say, you know, I've been doing a lot of doubles and triples and I'm getting strong, but I think my growth is like I, I want to do more. I want to be able to grow more. What should I do? My advice to them would almost always be, you know, it's good that you're progressing in intensity, but I would say that it might be a better idea to do some more reps and you, thus you'll be able to do more sets. And I think that'll lead to less strength gains, which won't be as cool, but it'll probably lead to um, more uh, ability to do... Uh, ugh, did I disappear from the video screen or no? No, you're good. 
Okay. It'll, it'll probably uh, lead to a, uh, a higher rate of muscle growth and a higher total level of muscle. I can put it another way. If someone says, hey, listen, so I'm wondering, uh, I know what my ability to uh, minimum amount that I need to do is. I know what my maximum recoverability is. Should I go from one of those points to the other before deloading and repeating in a mesocycle? Should I jump by 10 kilos at a time and thus not increase sets week to week? Or should I jump by two and a half kilos at a time or let's make this more extreme, zero kilos at a time, but increase sets week to week? Which one would lead to more strength, the first, to more hypertrophy, the second? Uh, I would say almost unequivocally. Now, I, I, I think that that does a bit of a disservice to this discussion and here's how. Um, I think that intensity, progression in intensity is absolutely a driver of hypertrophy, as is progression in volume. So I think that the best case is to progress both in intensity and in volume. If time is not a limit to you, if you can recover, I would say you should progress mostly in, in volume but somewhat in intensity, which means most of your microcycle to microcycle increases should come from adding sets or maybe repetitions, that comes with its own complexity. So let's just keep it simple and say adding sets. But some of it should come from adding weight. So maybe instead of putting five kilos on the bar, seven and a half kilos on the bar, microcycle to microcycle, if volume, if high size is what you're truly after, put two and a half kilos on the bar, micro to micro, make room in your recovery ability to add more sets. I think that's pretty close to optimal based on literature and, and theory and so on and so forth. So I think that volume is the predominant way to generate hypertrophy and moving through various volumes is. But I think that saying it's just volume, don't add intensity, I think is really short-sighted. I will qualify that statement. I think that if you're an individual who has a preset amount of time dedicated to training and does not want to alter that time, I have four sessions a week, each one's an hour. I come home and my wife will fucking stab me if I'm home <laughs> five minutes later. I can't, you know, I can't do this to myself. And if I leave early from work, my CEO will stab me. So I'm just getting stabbed left and right. If you have four hours or five hours or six hours or any number of hours to commit to training, increasing volume is a very impossible thing to do at that point. It'll fuck up your life because where the hell are you going to – your training sessions have to get longer. You have to add more training sessions. It's a bad deal. In that case, I would absolutely uh, uh, vie to add intensity and not volume. So what I would do is stick to something like Berge's 10 mm -hmm. sets a week total or 12 sets a week, maybe even eight sets depending on your abilities. And if you can grow from that, instead of adding volume every week, I would add intensity every week goes through a certain range and then deload and repeat to get stronger over time. I think that's a great way to grow. If you have an, uh, a more expanded uh, arsenal to be able to dedicate time to training, if you can do whatever it takes, I can't say that's the optimal way to grow, but it's a really, really great one. And I think that's where this discussion uh, is really going to end up going is, you know, a lot of folks, especially in your sustainable development group, Man, you know, sustainability and, a, and, and more so balance with other factors of life, man, it really kind of rules out that progressive mm -hmm. model of volume to a large extent. And there's a real big difference between searching for optimality and searching for an effective way to balance a good amount of results with your lifestyle. You know, Brad Schoenfeld and I, a lot of times, we're, 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 we have, we're on a quest for optimality because once we find what's optimal, then we can regress Stay back, back. Yeah. and tell people maybe you can do this, maybe you can do that mm -hmm. if you can't get to optimal. But the quest for optimal is not the same thing as the quest for recommendable. 
A lot of people say, well, you see that new study. Apparently, you know, your MRV can be 30 cents a week. Well, it can be, but it might, might not be. And you might not be willing to train that much. Um, so, you know, there's all kinds of things in which the best and the most is just, you know, there's a car that can go 300 kilometers an hour. That doesn't mean you buy it and crash the fucking thing. Maybe you're not able to drive that. Maybe you don't want to drive that sort of thing. Can you imagine showing up? to the dealership and being like, okay, which one's the fastest car? And they're like, well, that one's a race car. I'll take that one. They're like, do you want a fast car? You're like, no, but I read these magazines and they say fast cars are great. And they're like, have you ever driven a fast car? Like, I don't even know how to drive a stick shift. So maybe it's not for everyone. And knowing what you're buying is probably a good idea before dipping into all this stuff. Fantastic. And that's exactly what I wanted to, uh, I guess, get out of this conversation was to apply some context to, to this discussion and something I always explain to my clients is that you know we have optimal and you know in the most case that's what we should be striving for over time but you know like Borges uh, said we have the real world which gets in the way and we need to adjust our expectations uh, along the way and do uh, what's best for the individuals so moving forward uh, you know from this volume discussion I want to talk about uh, you know how we're measuring volume uh, now, and whilst this discussion uh, primarily so far has been speaking of volume as number of hard sets per week per muscle group, uh, you know we've had the introduction of effective reps or stimulating reps or at least the rise in its popularity uh, by Chris Beardsley, James Krieger, and so on and so forth. So, I guess uh, Mike, I wanted to to first ask you whether or not this is uh, going to change the way that you monitor volume and how you're looking at uh, volume as a whole? It actually uh, changes almost nothing about the way I monitor volume mm -hmm. or, or treat volume as a whole because uh, at RP, we don't really, unless you're a strength power athlete and weightlifter and then things get a little bit different and, and then volume's not that important anyway. It's a background variable and then hypertrophy is not exactly what we're after in any case, but when we design hypertrophy programs at RP, our bottom end intensity, relative intensity, is around four repetitions from failure. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, the effective reps calculation is, makes perfect sense, is really pretty equivocal uh, as to its fatigue to fitness trade-offs between four reps in reserve and one rep in reserve or zero reps in mm -hmm. reserve. It doesn't really – like the effective reps calculation isn't going to be really different between various programs and so on and so forth because they all kind of get to the same um, reps and reserve. Uh, like a, a real, real great place to do effective reps is to say, okay, you know, if I'm doing like a bunch of sets of fives, but they're all like five reps in reserve, is that a good idea? Or can I get in there and do some, uh, well, Jesus Christ, uh, myo reps, right? Mm -hmm. There's the perfect <laughs> illustration of that. Myo reps is the, probably the way to almost the best way uh, to, and probably the most practical way to uh, maximize the amount of effective volume you're doing because you're always close to failure and, and you always, uh, the calculations weigh out in your favor. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you gotta be get, you get, your training's gotta be fucking kind of weird for the effective reps to get real funky on you. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it is, um, you know, like let's say you're doing straight sets of 10. Um, there are probably other benefits of doing straight sets of 10 versus everything in my reps all the time, mm -hmm. for example, where your effective, your total volume isn't, uh, comparing as well to your effective volume, but it's probably more sustainable in the long term. Um, I think that training with my reps can be a great tool for when you're in a rush, 
um, for individuals that aren't super duper strong, um, individuals that aren't super very close to their recovery capabilities, et cetera, uh, traveling, so on and so forth. But um, there is a psychological demand from things like Meyer reps that is pretty massive. Um, and that being that close to failure every single set um, can really start to drain on you and, and can, can lower your recovery demands quite a bit uh, or recovery abilities quite a bit. So I think that not, not, not my reps per se, but I think if you take the effect of reps concept a little mm -hmm. too far, uh, you know, every set is going to be so crushing that you might not actually be on the most beneficial side of training anymore. So, so what I think, I, the, what I get the most out of the effective reps concept isn't a hard rule calculate your effective volume and if it ever goes down or up you're fucking ridiculous and you should you're training wrong i think that if you're got a way to train in which the ratio of your total volume to your effective reps is way off for example if you're doing sets of 50 reps and i mean each set is 50 reps and you're only approaching failure in the last five fucking god i mean you're just pissing away time but if you're doing sets of 10 or 12 relatively heavy is it a good idea to switch instead to one set of 15 and then five sort of drop sets after that? In some situations, yes. Is that a sustainable way to train? It might not be the most sustainable way from a technique perspective, from a involving the cardiovascular system perspective, so on and so forth. So, so that's my thoughts. A great guiding principle, mm -hmm. but not to be religiously worshipped. Surprise, another thing, just like total <laughs> volume, not to be religiously worshipped, <laughs> but a good guiding principle. Mm. Awesome, awesome. Because I can already, sorry, I can already see, and Berge can probably speak to this, I can already see people fucking running, you know, in your guys' group, you're going to put like, hey, here's a program you can try, and they're going to be like, I ran the effective rep calculation, and uh, it seems to be off, and you're like, oh my god, it's the only thing you do now is run effective reps calculation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Borge, how are you uh, using this concept now? Has it uh, changed your approach at all? I know you've obviously been you know, discussing my reps and things like that for quite some time, so it's not necessarily news to you, but your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's, um, just like Mike says, it, it's a good kind of concept to, to view um, or to have in the back of your mind when you start to discuss training volume, because mm. you know it's, I, I could easily support doing twenty to thirty sets if you were doing a lot of submaximal work. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's going going to be just fine. And and you know, doing Mike's approach of just you know having four reps in reserve for every set. Uh, you know, if you were to do the same amount of reps and the same amount of load, then for sure as fatigue accumulates, it would be closer to fatigue or failure on the on the last few sets and I mean we have good studies you know comparing like three sets to failure versus five sets of five uh, and um, you know there are minor differences between those two uh, simply because they have the same the same amount of total reps and going closer to failure which also induces more fatigue for sure uh, you know, and the higher level of uh, muscle recruitment, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's another thing that needs to be contextualized when you start doing meta reviews on, on training volume. Um, I also think it should be mentioned that the effective reps um, thing is not about going to failure at mm -hmm. all. It's just a way to sort of uh, calibrate the effect <coughs> of, uh, certain volume. Um, 
And my rubs is not either. Uh, the point of my rubs is not to go to failure. It's actually about managing fatigue, not chasing fatigue. So I think that's also very important to keep in mind. And and since you know it, it's going to be a part of the the program that we're going to present uh, in only three weeks or so. Um, it's go going to be like half the training program. Um, where the higher reps are going to use my reps exactly to get a more effective vo volume faster mm -hmm. uh, with you know shorter time spent in the gym but it's going to be essential to cycle your intensity meaning how close to failure or fatigue you are going because if you try to do that on every training on every muscle group every workout then for sure you you you're most likely gonna end up uh, having recovery issues. Awesome. Can well, I say so something I about that I, real quick? Yeah. yeah, so I think in, in general, I just you know completely agree with Mike. I think his uh, perspective on it is, is uh, great. Uh, I fully support that. I think it, um, just to touch on something Berger just said, it's really, um, I don't want to say baffling or short side. I was going to get a little bit insulting to the viewer, but I'm not going to do that. Um, it's interesting, interesting, that's a term I'll use, when people come to the discussion of, you know, we like what kind of, uh, how close to failure should I be training? Or what's the difference between training to failure versus training, you know, four reps away from failure, so on and so forth? Well, there are definitely exceptional situations maybe aren't so exceptional, certain situations, in which it's a really, really good question. For example, if your volume that you're able to do per week is artificially, even per workout, is artificially constrained to far below your maximum recoverable volume per week, then you're just not, uh, for, uh, just, just by scheduling, right? You just can't make it to the gym that much you're not really going to be at higher risk of accumulating too much accumulated fatigue over the weeks because your volume is capped so artificially low. So you have to ask yourself, given that I'm only allowed a certain time in the gym, how hard should I be working? And the answer is fucking pretty close to failure. And in some cases, you should be going to failure for all. Like if someone says, okay, mm -hmm. you got two sets to do here today mm -hmm. and then you can't train for another five days, you'd be like, fuck failure on clean and jerks just kidding don't do that no failure and clean and jerks but uh right uh but yeah oh yeah failure and maybe even beyond right if someone said you could only do four sets per muscle group per week uh i would take all of them beyond failure I'd get a spotter to fucking drag my ass out from under the bar you know as long as it's safe on the other hand on the other end of the spectrum when you're training when you're potentially can get close to your maximum recoverable volume in other ways when you can train plenty the question of should i train to failure or stay away from it is a little short-sighted because what is the purpose of training in the long term is to provide, as Berge said, progressive overload. How the fuck are you – even if it's volume or intensity, it doesn't matter. should be both. How are you going to provide progressive overload if you accumulate so much fatigue at the beginning of your training that you're not able to sustainably train for, for weeks and weeks and weeks before deloading, which is the real issue? So yeah. when someone says, how close to failure should I get? I say, well, you know, how, how long is your accumulation phase? And they'll say, well, mm -hmm. you know, it's usually like I go uh, four weeks up and one week down. I say, well, you know, four reps in reserve on the first week, three reps in reserve on the second, two in the, the, the third, and then one in the last one or go to failure, deload, then repeat. 
And they say, well, you know, and people will say like, well, man, you know, four reps in reserve on the first week sucks. Like, why can't I do two reps in reserve? Because what the fuck are you going to do with three weeks, man? You're going to go to failure because you're going to have to increase the volume and intensity. That means it's going to take you closer to failure. Your third week's going to be one rep from failure. Your, your or second week, your third week's going to be failure. What the fuck is your fourth week going to be? You're going to die. You're going to take the day off old age. Like it's not a progressive model. You have to make room for progressions. So by that, you should really be asking two things, two things about any workout you ever do. One, is this workout going to be effective for what I want? Two, how does this workout fit in to the progressive long-term path of the rest of my workouts? If you can't answer that second point, then you have a real big problem. So for failure, look, if you're deloading next week or if you're at such low volumes that fatigue doesn't accumulate, you should be going to damn near failure on every single set if you want. On the other hand, if you're a big volume commitment and you've got multiple weeks of increases ahead of you, you've got to make sure to stay shy of failure to still get an effect, yes, so you don't want to be like eight shy of failure, uh, but you, you absolutely want to make sure that you're uh, training not so hard that you're going to fatigue too fast and then and go nowhere shortly thereafter. Awesome. And I guess just to summarize that, you know, the range in which people want to stay in for the most part to get an effective rep would be, you know, the 6 to 10 RPE. And, you know, sliding up and down that scale is highly dependent on uh, volume uh, requirements within a program and time scale, you know, before deloading or the duration of an accumulation phase. So some really good points there uh, from both of you guys. Uh, I guess the, the final thing I wanted to discuss uh, with you both is related to nutrition. And uh, Bertigate, <coughs> you've written extensively about uh, dieting and you talk about the circadian rhythms uh, that dictate when and what we should eat during the day, but also seasonal uh, circadian annual uh, rhythms and how they dictate what we should eat throughout the year. Can you explain to listeners the rationale behind this eating strategy and then, Mike, we can uh, expand from there? Yeah, I guess it's just from an evolutionary perspective where, uh, you know, we, we know that temperature and, and daylight and sunlight and all that tends to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to, to govern your carb tolerance uh, on an individual level. Uh, and, and then again, you, you also have uh, a genetically determined carb tolerance and also uh, the level of inflammation and uh, the training you're doing and the um, you know duration and intensity and all that stuff. But from my point of view, yes, you definitely see a variation in, in general carb tolerance in the general populations uh, throughout the day where insulin sensitivity uh, tends to be higher systemically early in the day and then deteriorate uh, closer to the evening and night, where at night... Um, Carb tolerance and, and you know and any um, given amount of carb tend to induce a higher insulin release. Uh, that that's what you see in the general population. Now, if you're young, healthy, lean, and all that, and you're uh, doing daily workouts or you know whatever, just just uh, expanding glycogen and creating a, a sink for incoming carbs, then for sure that should probably dictate when and where you place your carbs. Um, so so that's like the daily aspect of it, and, and then the seasonal aspect of it is simply eat locally sourced foods in season because those will have the highest nutrient density. And, and as long as you have the food choices in place, I, I think macros and all that stuff should take like a secondary place. Uh, people tend to just start these 
insane discussions, uh, micromanaging macros and um, you know calorie levels, and 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 tend to ignore that you know there's there's definitely going to be a, a difference between having um, you know processed junk food and and just having uh, natural foods that you're you know making yourself at home. Um, and yeah, from the seasonal aspect of things, there will definitely be for a lot of the population on Earth, uh, for many generations, uh, be a scarcity of carb-rich foods during the during the winter time. Simply because a major part of human evolution had an ice age, and and so we would probably be evolutionarily adapted to subsist and sustain ourselves on mainly animal-based foods and fish and, and less plant foods and carbs. And, and then when, as spring and summer arrived and we had access to these, we would probably gorge more on these. And so you also see some seasonal variations in, in general carb tolerance. And I think that's a good thing to just have in the back of your mind. Now, the, the last thing I want to add to this is that if you've sort of been eating carbs every day of your life since you were a child, then you might not be as metabolically flexible as as would be uh, as would be a benefit to you. And and by that meaning that you sh you should be able to seamlessly switch between using fats and ketones for fuel and, and using carbs for fuel. Uh, Mike Nelson has been talking a lot about this, and I, I tend to agree with that general perspective that uh, at least for certain periods of time during the year you should perhaps try lower carb intakes even going on keto diets and, and you know there's been a huge uh, popularity around the carnivore approach and the zero carb approach um, where people have reported some pretty amazing benefits from that and, and I tend to think that for certain parts of the year, for certain people, there there's definitely a benefit to having that, let's say, four to six, maybe eight-week period of keto adaptation and, and lack of carbs and, and plant foods simply to increase metabolic flexibility so that when you reintroduce carbs and, and especially around your workouts, uh, you will have the a, a higher or better improved ability to to switch from using fat as fuel when carbs are scarce and and then using carbs as fuel when you absolutely need them. Cool, that's really really uh, interesting stuff, Mike. What are your thoughts on that? And uh, anything that you would add? <clears throat> so, a couple of questions about the evolutionary logic. The first question is in a bimodal seasonal environment of winter and summer, or, you know, fall and spring included. It could be hypothesized that during the summertime, when high carbohydrates from plant foods are available, the human physiology would favor an increased adiposity from consuming carbohydrates so that an increased layer of fat could be created to take one through the winter when the total food volumes were not as high and that carbohydrate consumption from accumulated stores or what have you during the winter 
would physiologically result in a lower propensity to create fat from carbs because that would need uh, way more calories than the winter could afford. And perhaps at that point, carbs would be used more for energy at that very time and to fuel working muscles and so on and so forth. So to me, it's not entirely clear that during the summer, humans are particularly predisposed to using carbohydrates for muscular shuttling by insulin or for energy. It might actually be the other way where, or I could see how it could be the other way, where carbohydrate uh, storage during hotter climates could be a huge benefit because when they're around, there's lots of them, get as fat as possible from eating them. And then when you get to the winter, you're nice and fat, squirrel-like, so to speak. And um, then when you, as the winter goes on, your body perhaps switches uh, to more favorably using animals, uh, proteins perhaps, but as well, it might burn carbohydrates more because there's just not enough of them to get fat off of anyway. Um, so I think the evolutionary logic there could, could go both ways, um, uh, first of all. Second of all, um, I think that the, uh, the polarity of climates probably excludes a, a vast majority of humans. So if you're um, West or Central African genetics, um, you're uh, many thousand, 70,000 years outside of, uh, well, actually never in that case, uh, 70,000 years split from the other major races and also have never really encountered a true seasonality in carbohydrate availability. There could be a rainy season and a dry season situation, but that's not, not really clear. It depends on the, the, the locale of when the rainy and dry season come. Sometimes it's during the summer, sometimes during winter, so on and so forth. I'm not entirely sure how that affects carbohydrates. So for example, while in Northern Europe, carbohydrate availability naturally would be much higher during the summer and during the fall, in West and Central Africa, carbohydrate availability might be much higher during the winter because it would be the rainy season, whereas the summer would be the dry season. So I think that um, perhaps for uh, uh, European populations, perhaps for Asian populations, there is a considerable amount of, of, of veracity to this claim. Uh, I think that for uh, South Asian populations, Southeast Asians, Aboriginals and um, uh, Pacific Islanders, and for Africans and much of Latin America, I think that uh, dichotomy of winter and summer carbohydrate availability might, might, might at least not be as extreme or possibly not a, be there at all or be backwards. So curious as to your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, for sure. That's, uh, those are all good points. Um, and hypothetically speaking, that could be a valid argument for sure, but I, I tend to think that systemic insulin resistance or, or carb tolerance is the major determinant of how well you handle those carbs. And even, you know, even, you know, several centuries back and several generations back, um, access to plant foods would be of the highly fibrous kind and, and low nutrient density or calorie density to be more specific. And so ju just to compare it on a calorie cost versus calorie supply uh, model, then gathering the foods required to fuel a human for a single day would require hours of work from plant foods and, and carb foods. And it will also require uh, preparing and processing you know, to uh, to make that uh, those carbs available for um, you know through digestion, uh, whereas you know getting a single animal, of course, that would also require probably a team effort and and some a high calorie expenditure. But 
you know, we evolved as subsistence hunters and also developed tools and weapons to be able to to hunt and fish uh, animals. And uh, just getting like a single animal would often be uh, enable us to feed a whole family for a week. Uh, so. You know, just just like from an overall perspective, I, I definitely think that we would have. The, the, there's been a couple of recent papers digging into the anthropological evidence of this, and you know, you 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 probably most of you have probably heard of Lord Lauren Cordain and his papers on this, and um, I think we would be. Um, we would probably have a high amount of animal sourced foods in our diets and then we would keep in carbs whenever available. Uh, but I do agree with the point that we would probably fatten up during summer to be able to tolerate the cold and hard winter with a lack of foods for sure. Uh, but I'm not sure we can use that to support that we should have like a high intake of carbs during winter time because uh, I don't see there being any physiological protective effect against body fatness from ingesting carbs at that time. Um, so in general, I think, you know, carbs versus no carbs, I just think that it doesn't have to be coordinated with cold and winter, but we do see that the body tends to, through thermogenesis and shivering and all that cool stuff to, that people now tend to seek out, uh, tend to increase uh, fat oxidation, fat mobilization and oxidation. So it might be an advantage to take, uh, you know, to, to benefit from that during certain parts of the year. And then, of course, some recommend that you should never have carbs at all, but I just tend to think that, well, maybe there's a point in at least cycling carbs uh, and having periods of low to no carbs to adapt the body physiologically to that and then strategically add them over time. Um, but, but yeah, there's, and there was also, you mentioned the aboriginals and, and I also remember there was a study where they actually reintroduced or Obviously, they removed all the sugar and junk food that these aboriginals have been eating for the last generation and then reintroduced their traditional diet, which for aboriginals tend to be a lot of uh, meats and fish and uh, all of their, you know, their metabolic health and, and um, obesity issues tended to resolve pretty quickly. So. I, of course, there's something to be said for the original diet, but with uh, the modern food supply and the knowledge we have today, maybe just you know have a few things in mind um, with regards to the foods we evolved on. But again, a needs analysis is probably a good idea when we want to set up how to optimally eat. Awesome. Uh, Mike? Thoughts on <clears throat> having deliberate periods uh, of you know very low carb uh, to no carbs and then transitioning uh, back to higher carbohydrate intakes. I think it's very dark in uh, in Norway. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Berge, right. you've we nearly disappeared it. from we the screen. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the sun is set now, so it's getting that's dark. Awesome. 
What time is it, if you don't mind me asking? It's 9.45 right now in the evening, so about 50 cool. minutes and it's going to be pitch dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if you're after metabolic flexibility for some reason, I think it's very good to work for it. If you have a pretty consistent approach to your diet, it may not be uh, worth the effort. Um, I do think that uh, really, really high carbohydrate consumption for a long time, especially during periods of mass gaining, can be um, taxing on your physiology and not the healthiest thing in the world. So periodic uh, returns to lower carbohydrate intake might be a good thing. Uh, folks that are training a lot, that are doing a lot of um, volume, I don't think they're ever going to drop their carbs very low. But I think that folks that um, lead a relatively normal lifestyle with fitness as a part of it um, can periodically drop carbohydrates relatively low and, and perhaps see some uh, some benefits there, especially you know, if they have to drop their carbs low at some point, they're not going to get tons of headaches and stuff like that from the huge switch from eating 700 grams of carbs a day to zero. <laughs> if you're used to cycling them a bit, then you'll probably be a bit used to that. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, really good to have uh, both of your insight on that. Uh, a lot of people are discussing it uh, on the forums, and I'm sure uh, that will give them some better understanding as to your thoughts and opinions on that. So, Berger and Mike, thank you so much. I would just like to I would just like to add a small thing, um, just as an interesting experiment that I learned from Rob Wolf in a seven day uh, carb tolerance test, where you just basically uh, do a, like a simple uh, blood glucose test two hours after eating and see whether you're below. 115, which is uh, the American standard. You, I can't remember the, I think it's milligrams per deciliter or something, uh, or 6.7 micromolars uh, per liter. Um, and this sort of tells you whether you're handling carbs well, whether you're uh, releasing a sufficient amount of insulin for the carbs. And you're, uh, whether you're able to simply shuttle those carbs into glycogen stores. So I, th I think we're probably going to get to a point where we're seeing the importance of insulin and glucose management, and not necessarily having them super high or super low all the time. Mm -hmm. So as far as individualizing your carb intake goes, maybe that's, you know, that could be a good place to start and, and simply just be aware of how you feel after you've eaten and... I think most people should feel, you know, energetic and warm uh, when they've eaten, and especially if you're active and, and doing training. So that's that's my take on it. Take on it. Cool, awesome. So, guys, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you all for listening and tuning in, Mike and Berge. Thank you for your time, and we'll speak to you all next time. Thank, thank you. you.